Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Joe Mills, a musician and producer who performs under the name Aver in the Berlin-based band Move 78. Move 78's music sits at the intersection of improvised jazz and programmed hip-hop. Their music is crafted from hours of studio improvisations that have been chopped up, rearranged, and layered with live instrumentation provided by the band members. Aver explains their technique and their process, as well as how it extends to their live performances. It's amazing. Move 78's name is taken from a match of the ancient Chinese board game Go, between Lee Sedol, the world champion of Go at the time of the match, and a computer program named AlphaGo. Lee was defeated in the first three games of the five-game match by his AI opponent, but he adapted and he played a move so strange that it completely befuddled AlphaGo and its algorithms. This move, which represented the human response to the challenges of an ever-evolving technological world, was, of course, Move 78. Enjoy. Good afternoon, good morning, whatever it is where you are. Evening. Uh, yeah, early evening. All right. Thanks for making time. I very much appreciate it. Well, good, man. Much Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk with you. It's, it's interesting. The way I came across your music, you may or may not be interested to know, was actually the Spotify algorithm. I'm, I'm intrigued to know constantly because it also it plays into a little, not a trick, but a little joke hidden in the album title. So, yeah. I'm a pretty big partisan of release radar on Spotify. It's a source for me for new music, and you popped up in there. But the interesting thing to take a step back about that, not specifically as it relates to you and your music, it's very interesting how I have found over the years you can train the algorithm if you put intention into it, as a listener even, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. If I've decided, okay, I've had enough of instrumental ambient music for a while. I'm going to spend the next two weeks listening only to old school hip hop and then watch my recommendations change. It's really, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's working as advertised, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. There is, it is a funny thing that my friends kind of comment on if they have a different music taste to me and then I commandeer their Spotify for a bit and then they're like, two weeks later, I keep getting this stuff. Like, why is this is goalful? Because, you know, obviously I put in some Art Ensemble of Chicago or some weird Herbie Hancock or whatever that mixes in with their, I don't know, like ambient house music that then throws it all up. You know, I kind of like messing with people's algorithms in that way as well. So it's good. I think to me, outside of the music itself, one of the things that I think is self-evident or is obvious in what you're up to and what Move 78 is up to is it seems to be this dialogue around an ambivalence with technology, if I'm reading it correctly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I wonder, for the benefit of our, our listeners, I wonder if you might, might start with, I think, you know, we need the origin story of the band name and how that relates to your sort of discourse and thinking about technology and our relationship to it. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, it is related to uh, 
a famous match, a Go match. So Go is an ancient Chinese board game. Google acquired a company called Deep Dream, who we were creating an algorithm to play the game Go. The algorithm is called AlphaGo. And there's a documentary that showcases this. It's very similar to Kasparov versus Deep Blue, which is a similar man versus machine, but involving chess. A similar man versus machine scenario back, I think, in the 80s, which it, it transcends. That was a, a massive promotional scheme for IBM. There's huge controversy about whether or not they rigged it. It's neither here nor there. But this was a similar promotional drive in some way by Google for their AI potential. And at first, it played some other human Go players, AlphaGo, the algorithm, and it destroyed them. And then they put it against basically the Michael Schumacher, Pete Sampras of Go. Uh, this man called Lee Sedol, he was the nine Dan champion, the greatest player on earth at that point, or as, as my vague knowledge of the, of the Go world extends to. And everyone thought that Lee Sedol would outsmart the computer. There was no way it was up to speed with him so far. And in the five-game match, the first three games, AlphaGo completely destroyed Lee Sedol and won them outright. And then there was even commentary from the experts within the game being so astounded at how beautiful AlphaGo was playing the game. And then in game four, Lee Sedol, having already lost the match technically, began to change the way he played and he essentially kind of adapted his both creative, I guess, intuitive, but also skillful approach to playing the game of Go to the way the computer played it. And at some point he played a game like midway through, he played a move midway through the game, which was so complicated that it baffled the computer. In the documentary, you see all the sort of scientists behind the screens being like, oh, what, what just happened? All the probability rates drop. Everyone gets confused. And then there is a human who is playing AlphaGo's moves for him. And when he then plays the next move that AlphaGo selected, he looks embarrassed. And basically, the computer starts to malfunction, loses the game. And then this Lisa doll is then adored, walks into a room where people are clapping hands like rapturously and essentially is referred to this God move or yeah, something so complicated that it confused the computer and this move was move 78. There is a more concise description of this on the inside of our first album cover. But yeah, essentially it's the modern version of man versus machine. So not Terminator, not like, oh, it's going to kill us, it's going to exterminate us. But the fact it it outsmarted him in such a way, but the way Lisa Doll refers to it is that actually he learned to play Go better by playing the computer. And this is then tying it to the specific nature of how we make our music. I am a hip-hop producer who cannot play a singular note. I do not know any formal musical training in terms of theory. Like I, I can probably show you a middle C is, but I can't play chords. And then everyone else in the band is either a classically trained jazz musician or is a lifelong jazz and groove aficionado, or there is people who are members of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Originally sat at home with my then partner, had this idea like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you put at the center of a band this idea that humans reacting to technology because we're drum and bass music or breakcore or glitchy hip-hop can they replay it and also do they play differently if they tried to replay it and so initially this kind of started out as a set of trials that we did where they replayed some of my music but then i actually the, the moment when i knew it was going to work where i basically played them weird clusters of sounds that i hadn't fully structured into songs yet and they improvised for 20 minutes around it having previously in my music career only ever used records, free jazz or normal jazz or psychedelic rock or whatever, 
you're left with just one stem. And maybe you get in the free jazz all these different little parts you can piece together. But here I was presented with 20 stems, or for the listener, the uniformist, uh, 20 audio tracks that all comprise the one song that I could pull apart at will and rearrange. And then I would do this, and then what happened is I would then take the songs back to the musicians and get them to improvise again around their own recordings, kind of feeding into the deep learning idea that you learn from your own... So AlphaGo learned from its own mistakes in games that it played theoretically. And this is then the musicians playing to their own improvisations and then going further and further into the grooves, basically. You can read it as like our retaliation to technology, but actually for me, it's more a learning from computer programs, also algorithmic synthesis with a thing called granular, granular synthesis or yeah, granulation, which is something that we use, we're using more in the future albums where you're taking computer algorithms to select these random pieces of sounds and then rearrange them and then playing around that. And again, it's this challenging the quite talented musicians to play outside the normal realms in which they would play. So yeah, in some ways it's quite convoluted and hopefully the music just sounds good. But if you choose to look into what the name means and what the, the second album is called Automated Improvisation, that is an di- exact description of the music. It is hours upon hours of improvisation have then been automated by me and then cycled over and over again. All right. There's a lot there. So let me... Uh... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Once it goes, it goes. No, no. It's a lot, in a, it, it's a lot to explore and it's a lot that I'm, that I'm fascinated with. Let's take everything you and I just talked about for the first 10 minutes, set it aside for one moment and say, as a listener, that's largely irrelevant. The process is largely irrelevant. This is not necessarily process music as someone would think of maybe early minimalist music or it's not, it doesn't sound like game music. Like it's, this sounds like modern acoustic electronic sort of trip hop and like, you know, people will recognize this as modern music. This is not like, this is not a gimmick. It's just, you have a process that you've uncovered that allows you and your collaborators to access creativity in a different way. Yeah, essentially, in my head with art in particular, not saying this is art, but the way I would approach it is I want to look at a painting and be like, oh, that's really interesting. And then if there's a sub story or all these little hidden artifacts within it, and then I find more out about the artist, the time it was made and everything else involved in the picture from that, then that's my choice to dive in deeper. But my initial thing is I just want to look at it and that be stunning in some way. And this is the kind of thing we want in the music. I don't want it to be too wanky. I don't want it to be... 25-minute solos for every member of the band. I want it to be enjoyable on both the surface level and if you choose to dive deeper, then essentially. So, yeah, yeah forget the first 10 minutes. I hope you enjoyed it. Take care. Bye. <laughs> I, ha- I have to... So now then, to re-enter some of that stuff just for a few moments and to sort of dive in and out, how did you become familiar with Lisa Dahl's story and how did it intersect with the path you were on anyway? Yeah, it's also tied to the first band name, the first album, The Algorithm Smiles Upon You, with several coincidences that occur. So I, I've been making hip-hop music. I started producing when I was like 17, cutting up samples, drum breaks, whatever, you know. So like two years ago? No, 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 no. When I, <laughs> when I, when I, when I was 17, so 20. Well, I think you look like 19 now. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm old, 38. Man child. Um, and yeah, and we would, me and my friends would do that just for fun, essentially. And at some point we started doing shows and then I did a degree in design so I could do all the trimmings around the artwork because I love 
vinyl covers as well and videos. And so we put out our first record in 2011. It never really took off in a way that I wanted it to. Various complications within the band and within friendships and just making quite obscure music that people didn't really give a shit about. And then I moved to Berlin in 2016 on the back of Brexit. And by this point, I'm like an avid fan already of DJ Shadow and making instrumental music, really trying to layer it and make it atmospheric so that in its own right, it's listenable. And so this is then the deep listening of incredibly weird music concrete or crazy synthesis records from the 60s and 70s, free jazz, all these kind of slightly impenetrable records trying to find sample sources that hadn't already been used by everyone that comes before you. Yeah, this that you find me then in Berlin where I made this decision that I wanted to do music 40 hours a week to train and get much better. And I basically moved here to practice. At this exact same point, my sister who had moved to Berlin with me, she's quite a handsome lady. She'd never used a dating app before. And she used Tinder once when we moved to the new city and she went on one date with one guy. This guy is now essentially sort of my brother. Uh, he is near Sabag, who is the drummer in the band. She met up here off of him famously. And then she said to me like, oh yeah, I went on a date with this guy and he's a jazz drummer. And I was like, oh, eh? all right, okay. So let's, you know, what's, what's the jazz world saying? Because at this point in Berlin, it was very technocentric. Very, we moved in the winter. So it was lots of clubs, lots of late nights listening to music I don't particularly like. And then it was like, all right, the jazz world here is very much underappreciated. As I said earlier, I then began hanging out with a load of musicians who... They've got terrible taste in album covers. They've got terrible taste in aesthetics in terms of the way they present their music. But the brilliant core print of the playing is extremely good. And so I was in that exact period of time thinking about like, oh, this would be cool if we could like get that together. I then watched the film, the AlphaGo film in bed with my then partner. And I remember saying to her like, yo, that, that moment is so cool. Where, because everyone's so shocked by the way he plays the move. He, he loses the game eventually. This is the other, the real sad thing of it. It's not like I think we're going to outsmart the computers or anything. This is, he is essentially doomed to be outsmarted by the computer. And walks away from the game ultimately, which is... Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he, lost, he lost the fifth game. He said he's played AlphaGo since and continues to lose to it. But yeah, at this exact point, I would, had been signed to Village Live Records, which is a small label in the UK, and had released one instrumental album and had started work on the second one. And I recruited Nir to play drum breaks for me. And I recruited Deron, who is the keyboard player, to play keys on some of the tunes. I was getting frustrated with the limitations of samples. And so to really try and expand this, I'd never really recruited people other than my older brother. So that's the exact point when I watched the film. And actually, Deron and Nir asked me, did I want to start a band with them? And I was like, yeah. Like, I was like honored in some way because... I guess I had imposter syndrome hanging around with these people who played their instruments since they're four years old. Yeah. There was a little bit of, oh, what am I, I going to do? What do I bring here? So this is like 2018 by this point. The, the thing starts to swirl together of like, oh, also, I just thought having the word move in the same way, like rage against the machine, like people refer to them as rage, just having the word move and also with the band can, as opposed to can't, like, you know, you can or move. I thought that was just a good thing to have. And then, oh, yeah, but wouldn't it be cool if you had the idea with the man versus machine thing at the center of it? And that's then when it started to like swirl a bit more. So like 2018, the game took place in 2016. The documentary is late 2016, 2000, early 2017. And then, yeah, about a year later, or I'm become aware of it. Never heard of Lisa Law before. I never even heard of Go. I was not aware for all my sins. Does he know about you? 
So this is one of the nerdiest but most wonderful things. I've got a friend who is a producer called DJ Food, Strictly Kev, and he had shared one of our records. And I got a message from a man, his artist name and Instagram handle is Kid Vector, but he is the head of design for DeepMind. And he said, yo, I saw the album cover. I listened to the music. I have some love trip hop. I love the fact that you turned it, the dots of the positions into the cover. And then I've since sent him a care package with the records in and so on. But I don't think Lisa Doll, yeah, even though his voice is featured on one of the records, I don't think he is aware of who we are. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. I, I love the album art. I love the various takes on the move, the board layout. It was especially fun because I didn't know what it was at first. Like you, I, I've heard about Go over the years as some something of a technology enthusiast. I've known it's it's this massively complex game for computer scientists to model against and things like that. But it's such great album art. Like, it's so evocative. <laughs> it works really well. Okay, but this is another one of these things where, because again, I did design, but actually all the artwork is done by my good friend, James Brooks. And I remember like, I'd done like this proper crude mock-up of like, wouldn't it just be great to have the dots on the cover? And I remember people being like, that's just well boring. And I was like, no, but if you, but you know, if you make it, if you design it real nice and you get the lines and the form and so on, and me and him were sat in a pub in Neukölln. And there's actually one even even better bit. So on the first record we ever did, it's like a transparent disc. And I was saying, oh, wouldn't it be killer if you got it so that the dots, for anyone who hasn't seen the artwork, this is going to make sense. But if you got it so that the middle dot, the, the spiral goes through on the record player, if that dot was move 78, so when you slide it on, no one else would know. But if you were looking like, why is it this? And he completely ignored this. And then about five minutes later, it was like, I got it. We should do this thing where you put the thing in the middle. It's kind of like these ideas, they're all sat around slowly. Like we had a similar thing with a song title recently. Everyone is now thinking in the same way in this sort of computer man versus machine. Like what does it represent and what do the songs mean? And yeah, so everyone's kind of like moved into the gear of having fun with it. But he makes it the slick wonder that it is like he, he realizes my design dreams in such a way that like I couldn't basically. Something you said a few minutes ago, I wanted to ask you again about when you wear your producer hat in this type of music, producer and composer is essentially to be reductive is essentially synonymous, right? Like a, the beat maker, the music bed maker, you were essentially curating the samples and the portions of the improvisations that you were then going to present back to the players to respond to. Are you looking at leveraging technology to hand that role over to, or at least to create the initial, like you're going to basically let the machine start to give you the things to react to? Right. No, no, but the, the, this is... I appreciate that you and me can venture off into the nerdiness, but whether or not your listeners are as... Uh, <laughs> oh, we're very process-driven here, so people yeah, yeah, love cool. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the, the thing that I was talking about is this thing called granular synthesis, which is developed by a guy called Robert Haneke. And it's predominantly used in like sci-fi soundtracks to create like weird disgruntled sounds in some way. But what Deron, who is the more technically-minded member, he, at the start, when I was trying to get everything together, was very prominent in prodding me to both use weird sort of rhythms and patterns, but also to use the granular synthesis. And what it essentially does is when, it, when you would normally sample something, like I'm just going to show you on the screen, but if you go A to B, it just goes like this. And then you chop the size and you, you're moving this around in a very linear, normal way. 
And what granular synthesis does is take loads of tiny little fragments of sounds, which you can determine the size of, and then rearrange them. So one of the examples that we got is a, an unused flute solo on the tune Daisies. When we play live, because it's in key with the tune, I then use the granulator to play a solo live. The best feedback we've got so far on stage is like people can't really tell what's going on. And so you've got this then flute solo that initially starts off like, but then if you turn the grains smaller, it then becomes this sort of distorted, glitched out sound. And you can turn that into a really either disturbing thing or a really beautiful thing. And you can take up the pitch and approaching it in a way where the computer is doing some of the work, but you're controlling it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it is it's it is definitely creating such a randomness that it's not something that I decide. I'm twiddling two or three controls, but really it there's certain points. The best example is on track five on the second album, Automated Improvisation. The song is called Ultra Natural. We had a, a horn session where for some reason we ended up with three saxophone players in the studio and it was a nightmare. And there was only one usable bit of sound, which is this swell where they all played at the same time. And then Duran basically sat at his house twiddling with some knobs and at some point hit the right parameters. And when he pressed it on the key, it just unleashed this sort of orchestral soundscape. And then if he played more keys up and down, it just created this whole other world. And that me and him were just sat there laughing because he's essentially just holding one key down and this whole other thing has unfolded. So in, to answer your question very simply, we're not surrendering it but we're like lending it artistic license to wander off where it wants. And so on stage, what I now do is place that on top of the music. The live performance, we also like self-sampling on stage and try not to get too strange with it, but have it that the songs also go in completely different directions every night. So they might start with the bass line in the same place, but invariably they will tangentially end up somewhere strange. I'm fascinated by how this approach extends to your live performances, but then also extends back into the next iteration of your studio work. It's fascinating to read about your process. And so I wonder if maybe I could start, or if you could help me start maybe at the genesis of a track, you and your collaborators go into the studio and it's essentially a series of jam sessions, is that correct? Or, or, or sort of structured improvisations? Yeah, pretty much. So actually, the third album is coming out on the 3rd of November called Grains, but we just recorded the fourth album or the initial stages of the fourth album. I guess a, a good example of that in that is in the second session we ever did, they played a song we really liked. It didn't quite hit, but I made a version of it. Long story short, like it just it wasn't as good as it should be. And then in this new session, in the fourth session, I took the horn lines and the string parts that we had recorded to their thing and then played them the track again. So they start playing their own bass line. They start playing their own drum shuffles. They start playing their own key parts. I'm then granulating this horn sound on top of it and playing the strings and putting vocal samples on and whatever. It's it just even though they're playing a song that they'd already played, they played it completely differently. And it ends up being 15 minutes long. It's much looser and weirder, regardless of if it was something that they played or not. They groove around it in such a way that within two minutes, it's completely, although the chords might be the same, it's completely different from how it was originally presented to them. Because, for instance, 
if the Ron is in a bad mood, he plays more moody. So the chords are sharper or longer or there's more delay on them or he's there's something more aggressive about it. And then the rhythm section played together so frequently, the bass and the drums, they also provoke the Ron in a funny way. So what you get in the actual session is them toying around with him and him, just this kind of interplay when they play so frequently together with me noodling around on top in somewhere or another. So that's like the, that's the start point. Then now the raw product that I'm left with, I've got 15 minutes of bass, both DI'd and with a mic in an amp out in the room, three keyboards with various pedals attached to them, me on the sampler, and then 10 mics on the drum kit. And then after that, I've started to chop this up and it will end up being reduced into parts that I think have some sort of novel interest. For lack of a better term, also we've got a song called Follow the Earworm and a lot of it is this, if I've got this thing stuck in my head, because I've also now been, we did this recording session three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I wander around the city on the trains, on my bike, listening to this stuff constantly so that I can find where the parts are and then already kind of make a mantle map in my head about which bits are valuable and which bits will go good next to each other. And so I've then started assembling that the bit that then is, I think some jazz aficionados will be slightly perturbed by is putting things on grid to one way or another. So nothing is quantized directly. There is no machine like snapping everything in place. But what I would do is very often with the bass and the drums, there's these, say, 32 bars that I love. As an example, I would take these bars. If the rough BPM is 85 BPM, I would cut it so that the same iteration between the bass and the kick are maintained because often the bassist will play shortly after the kick not directly on yeah and so this sort of interplay is maintained but then it makes the structure malleable so if it's on a grid in some way then i can take oh this snare doesn't hit i can take this snare and put this one here or or actually i want this one to be quieter so i move it around then i will tend to the keys then i'll tend to my part and at this stage we then get to what what is probably like the end of phase one. I will then take this to Marav, who is the French horn player, or AJ Niles, who is uh, the viola player, who is in the Philharmonic Orchestra, and various other people. And we, we then let them improvise on top. And we, in these sessions, mostly I'll have come up with a sort of a line in my head where I'll be like, oh, I want it to go... And then Duran will translate that into actual <laughs> musical notation... And then Marav will, she will play it, but then she will also then improvise around it. And then again, I take this away, I'll cut it up, I work out the bits. And also when we're recording, I pretty much know the bits that were right. The most layers it's had is probably like 10, six or seven additional recording sessions with either percussion or something else and chopping up and resampling and so on. But often it's more like the initial recording session, then one more recording session, then a resampling session. And then you get into about a, a three or four minute tune. The final tune on automated improvisation, which is nine and a half minutes, I think I worked out there was over like 120 minutes worth of raw material in the session that I've then filtered down. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty long-winded process if you start to think about it in terms of time. But I kind of have this thing where people have asked me, like, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you like get them to just play it? My friend said this thing, I've gone as far as you can go to try and not learn how to play an instrument. But I love the puzzle part of it, but also it's kind of leading to this really nice 
end product where it doesn't feel forced. There's some innate strangeness to it that I really like, basically. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Bonus Tracks is the official blog of Spotlight On, online at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. There you'll find additional artist interviews, music commentary, and more. Have a look. And now, back to Spotlight On. There are many elements in what you're doing and the way you approach it that are very much analogous to a lot of mathematical theory, a lot of computer science theory, the notion of like recursiveness, and even there's like a fractal nature to what you do. It's very interesting. And also the idea that if you had a 180 minute improvisation or jam session or session of material, it's very much like the game of Go in that the potential permutations and moves out of all that, it's almost exponentially and like it's immeasurable the amount of material that can be spawned from one of your sessions this is actually how we've come to have the first album i'd been working on the nine tracks for automated improvisation and then the pandemic had hit and we released middling well no we, we hadn't released middling i'd sent it to the label and said i've got this these bits sat around i don't think they're going to go on the main album and he was like oh we should put it out and i think we were going to get 50 copies lathe cut by this guy in Munster. And then we put that online and then the distributor waved his magic wand and it ended up on two playlists with like two million monthly listens in front of it. And then from this point, the stats went crazy. As a person who wasn't that bothered about Spotify at this point, it made the band instantly like, as, as with your radar release things, just on people's watch list, not a watch list, but just on their horizon in somewhere or another. And so what happened is because I had approached it in this There is no perfect beat. There is no finished thing. I had like 34 songs made for the album. And then I'd been like, all right, at some point instinct, it's in as these have this thing that I really like that I will make the decision on that that's what we're going to use. And then I'd said to the label, oh, I've got these other eight tunes that I think are good, but I don't want to release. And should we, seeing as though it's the pandemic, seeing as though these ones, I think two of them got playlisted in a row. Because one, it could generate some money. Two, it could generate some hype. And three, it would buy me time to work on this other stuff and finish it. And so that's why then we called it The Algorithm Smiles Upon You because mm-hmm. it did. <laughs> the mighty notion that one, it did, but also that you can view it as a sinister way that there is a giant algorithm watching over us, which I don't particularly feel that comfortable about. Also the thing with my sister, this one use of Tinder. I also like Krungbin. And so we were kind of like playfully ripping because their first album is called The Universe Smiles Upon You. And so it was like, yeah, it'd be cool because if people get recommended to them this album and they like it and they're like, oh, the algorithm did smile upon me. And it's in the comments. The YouTube comments says it. And actually, we got our booking agent, this guy called Andre Marmot from Earth Agency. He got in touch and said, yo, you came up on my Spotify and it just seemed like destiny because of the title. All this sort of stuff, maybe I'm misquoting it. That then meant that me having made these 34 tunes wasn't wasted time. And yeah, there was not that it's infinite potential, but there was a lot of songs that that I saw no use in directly that ended up having a positive impact on us by just doing the process of it and not being really perfectionist or romantic about how good I wanted the end products to be. The creation process that you articulated about how the tracks come together, can you tell me how that extends or how that applies to what you're doing in the live performance context? Because I think I understand, but I don't want to... I don't want to misunderstand. 
in which sense in the kind of so when you're on stage it sounds like you run a condensed version of that very same process like you're sampling stuff in real time and the artists your collaborators are reacting to that yeah yeah so i mean there there is a set list and we're going to start on one song and we're going to go into the second song and then you know we'll end up here but the general parts between it are becoming less predictable and clear and the the part of it that I sort of operate in is that, so for instance, with middling, there's a singing part. I will trigger the singing part. So even if they're playing completely different stuff, that recognizable hook is there, which for my hip hop sentimentality is something I want to maintain. If we're going to play Follow the Earworm, I want you to hear the horn line and know this is that tune. I don't want it to be so such an obscure remix of our own music that you can't tell. But what, for instance, happened when we played in London we do this sort of a death drop of BPM. So follow the earworm is like 134 BPM. Follow the earworm part two is 92 BPM. But they completely overdropped it. And so they went from like 134 down to 80 BPM. And it became this sort of like deep house, super slow, like the French horn had a big fat distortion on it. And we, we rocked that for four or five minutes just because it sounded good and we're talking on stage and we maintained it. But then when we came back from the tour... This was the first instance of me getting the stems from the desk and then being like, all right, I can take these parts. And then we re-released that. So there's Follow the Airwind Part 3 now online, which we redid the drums, but it just went off on its own direction. So it still sounds familiar, but it's something new. And there is another element I think we'll probably venture into more when we're more, not more established, but I guess when we've got the actual technique down where we're sampling the drums on stage and granulating them, sampling the the keys or the horn on stage and granulating them, and then allowing probably like 10, 15, 20 minutes, well, not probably not that long, maybe like 10 minutes to like really stretch out if we feel to let that go where it wants. Because I do like the idea of giving people what they want, but also provoking people to wonder about what exactly it is they just ingested. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, was that that song? And when did it change into this other song? And that's something we were playing on initially. We were only just getting started as a live act. So that 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 thing in London was first, the first sold out show we'd done, but also the first real resampling of ourselves and then putting that out as recorded material as well. It sounds like a recipe for really spurring a passionate fan base because there's a lot of room for obsessiveness. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm assuming you know who Makaya McCraven is. Yes. Yeah. Like his sampled version of doing roughly a similar thing, but it's done in quite large chunks. Whereas mine is taking very, very tiny pieces and rearranging them. And his is like amazing loops. And when he, when I saw him play live, they were impersonating the pitching up and pitching down of a record between the four or five players, which is killer. But the thing that we're trying to do is kind of the opposite where we're using the computer to create the fluctuations on stage so that then the musicians are adapting not that being pre-learned is a bad thing i mean the the technical ability to do what they were doing is incredible right also because there was a bit on stage where all the crowd was shouting back at us and i I was like yeah i want to put that in the records and i know he does that as well and that that like you're saying obsessiveness that thing i want people to be able to come and get something different from it but also to be involved in some way these sorts of things i've not fully explored yet because i also had this real amazing idea I wanted to do where I would go and interview people before the show and have such a quick turnaround that I can program their interesting quotes and whatever and play it on stage so that you are fully part of it. I do do a radio show and I had people send me 
voice notes about positive ideas for the future, a world they wanted to live in. And then there's a real nice occurrence. We did a, the, an album launch in Berlin. And one of my friends, I didn't know she'd come to the night, the event, and I'd sampled her talking about, uh, she's Palestinian. She was talking about, are we all just going to fight over these little blocks of land that we're, we're born on? Or are we going to live in a better place? Are we going to like take psychedelics in the garden and be drunk with ecstasy? And this very like beautiful sort of poetic speech. And I played this on stage and then she was there. And she was like, this was a singularly important, well, not important, but beautiful thing to hear. I would like to manifest some way to get people integrated into it as well. It just, it gives us better ideas, I think. If we're feeding back off the audience, it leads the musicians in a way, although it's still instrumental, it gives a narrative to the music in a way that doesn't have a rapper dictating it or a singer controlling it. I'm sure playing with people with a jazz background or a free improv background, that I can completely understand how they can thrive in these moments and in this environment. But you mentioned also some people that played from a more classical background. I, I think I heard you say that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the knock on those musicians is often that they, they, if it's not on the page, they can't do it. They don't, they never developed those chops. And I wonder if, putting aside whether that's true or not, or that's a over broad, but how is that experience different? Are you finding that it's a challenge for musicians of different backgrounds? And, and is there fertility in that challenge? So Marav, who initially, in the pandemic, we'd done some recording sessions and I went around to a house and I mostly just sat there in silence and occasionally hummed a few ideas to them. But Deron and Marav just did the whole thing. They just illustrated loads of dreams that I'd had because I didn't realize the dynamic range of the French horn. She explained to me that the attack is the thing that dictates the sound that if you electrify it, you can't tell if it's a guitar or if it's a horn or if it's a violin. And she could play as beautiful as a string line or she could do a real grungy, punching, sort of distorted foghorn. In my head, I was already then like, oh, she's got to be in a band. I just, I would love <laughs> her to be in the band. But the, the initial thing came up with, but she can't improvise. But then also, neither can I. I am like the least skillful of all the muses. I'm, I'm also going against my own principles. I don't really like button pushing. And I'm on stage pressing buttons that I've organized in a grid, in an alphabetical, Western alphabetical, like left to right, top to bottom kind of thing. So I can play the parts as I go through. And then there's the granulator bits, which are separate. So when it's like, oh, Marav struggles with the improvisation bits and we can't get as loose. It's like, but I'm also in that same field. So there's part of it where, because we are operating roughly in a set range of chords or keys or whatever, she's sat with me. I also stood next to each other on stage in this way. So we're kind of like, all right, you know, you try and you move into this bit now. And Deron is also stood next to her. So there is a, there's a nervy energy to it. Like when we venture into the really like wider, stranger parts, but also it's something that she wants to embrace. It's also something that I walk into. So that part of the official myth is kind of true. She struggles more to improvise with it. But then also she turns up to all the sessions fully rehearsed so she knows she's made herself and she's done this home prep that actually the improvisers don't do as much they come up and like yeah you know we're gonna wing it <laughs> they're, they're relearning their own improvisation so they're struggling in a different way where she turns up fully in the mix is having to lean into that bit but because the french horn is playing the catchy bits or the the memorable lines when she goes off into this sort of sound effect department of the horn with lots of effects that she's also starting to learn it complements them it allows them to spread out more 
And then when we bring it back, it comes into the center where me and her are playing more of the memorable parts. And interesting. At the minute, it's working well. You'd, you'd have to ask her. I'm, I'm sure she she might say differently and that she struggles loads of it or that she's up for embracing it. But yeah, they're, they're completely different worlds to my understanding. It doesn't sound dissimilar from the way song form or like the canon of standards works in like jazz improvisation, right? There's the there, there'd be the start of the song is the recognizable part of, say, an old Broadway show tune or something. And that's the launch pad for the improvisation. But then it's there again at the end. So there, it's almost like there's a grounding effect that that you all play for each other so that it doesn't become completely free. Yeah, I, I, I don't want it to get totally free because it, I don't mind it like having flashes of it. And actually, it, when you when we contain it and we only let out like tiny little wild thirty second bursts, it gets a much better reaction. But near the drummer was previously in a free jazz band that he kept saying this thing of like, if there is more members of the audience than there is people on stage, then it's a good show. And I was, <laughs> All right, I'm not I'm not looking to scare the shit out of everyone and go so off piece that yeah, it, it's unlistenable to the general ear. But this this is a funny road that we have to walk now. Because I want all jazz heads to appreciate the strange shit that we were trying to do. But I also want the trip hop, hip hop, like even pop people to be intrigued to hear what it is. And yeah, this is, we were talking to a booking agent about this the other day. Like even with the bookings we want to get, do we want to play in small jazz clubs? Or do we want, we just played in a blues festival in Romania. I don't know what they expected. But when we, we were sound checking, the engineer was like, yeah, this gets pretty weird and psychedelic. I wasn't expecting that. And everyone else was a blues act. And so this is kind of a creative decision we have to do now within where we play. I, d- I don't want it to get too stretched out, I think. No. That's a, it's a very interesting point you bring up, and it's something that's come up, actually t- two themes there that have come up a lot in other conversations I have here. The first is, broadly speaking, like the, the resurgence, if you will, or the, the infusion of jazz into a lot of modern music. You know, I'm a bit older than you are, but it's been something I was never expecting to see. I quite honestly, I grew up in an era where the conversation was, is jazz dead? Is there anywhere left for the form to go? And to see it cross with electronic music and with hip hop and to be really a part of the cultural conversation again is so like, it's just so gratifying. It's so healthy for the music and artists like what you're doing. A lot of artists across Europe in particular but it does also beg the question of where to present the music. I, again, I've talked to a lot of artists who have really struggled with where should we play? Like, do we play rock clubs? Do we play jazz rooms? Do we play non-traditional rooms and just go find spaces to present our work in a new way? It's basically like new forms are emerging and can ultimately be presented in new ways if the artist wanted to go there. Yeah, so the booking agent who we're working with who sought us out, who I started to get to know a little bit. We only started working in last December. And he's actually writing a book, or he's just sent me the first draft of his book called Unapologetic Expression, which is about the resurgence of jazz in London in particular. He's from London, so you have to give his London-centric point of view on things. But there is a thought that basically because of the Peckham jazz, because of the use of Kamal, the resurgence of that album, obviously championed by Giles Peterson as well, but what that, the attachment to grime and drum and bass and the recycling that, through Afrobeat and jazz playing with like Ezra Collective and so on, that this really gave it like a massive sort of groundswell 
in London. And he talks about in that, you wouldn't have thought that a band led by a tuba player would be selling out like a 5,000 person venue. In 2016, even when those records were, the initial inklings were coming out. And then you got something like the Pharaoh Sanders Floating Points album, which obviously is a late career classic for Sanders and a completely mad feat of, I don't know, creative writing on terms of Sam Smith because you get, or Sam Trepper, sorry, because you get this, well, it's like a 38-minute ambient piece that's conducted for an orchestra written by what a lot of people know him as is like a house producer. And it creates this fucking, it got best album of the year in Time Magazine. And again, like, where do you place this stuff? I don't really know. But the bit that I personally, from my sort of hip-hop background, have loved so far is being in a sort of small, sweaty room with about 400, well, 300 people is the best that we've had, or 250. And then it's kind of tight. And playing it there, because I don't, I don't know if ours will transfer to much bigger than that. Like we're playing Jazz Cafe in London. We're doing a UK tour in November. And we're playing Jazz Cafe in Jazz Week. And that's going to be like 475 people. And I think the, the general thinking is that to really make money on the road, you need to be playing to plus 500 people every single night. Now, obviously, yeah, I want to get beyond that. But really, I do think that small, big fat sound system, big sub, tight room, preferably smoky, but maybe it won't be because it's the UK. Like that, that, that kind of atmosphere is where I would want to hit it. But where everyone else is playing, I think that floating points, they're doing this one-off gig at the Hollywood Bowl with Shabaka Hutchins playing Ferris Anders' part and with the Hollywood Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, so I guess it's like, it's got some limits somewhere, but it's definitely stretching out to places that I don't think anyone thought it was going to go. But from my, my Mancunian, Northern English sort of drum and bass upbringing a lot of people like Fotec referred to that as an extension of jazz they were taking the miles davises they were speeding up the drum breaks from the jazz records and they were twisting it in such a way although it's quantized it was still like an exploration of the same vein then if you connect that to where everything is in 2016 i find it very interesting people think it went away but actually it was just bubbling under and i like with the grime scene in the uk where people thought it had died in 2006, they were just like, fuck it. If you guys don't want to pay for it, we're going to keep doing it. And I, and I think that's the beautiful thing with the wider sort of new jazz communities that people are getting credit for it. But as uh, Malcolm Cato, who is the drummer in the Heliocentrics, and he produced the first two tracks on the Yusuf Days album, he said, if the London jazz scene lives or dies, like if it dies tomorrow, I'll still be doing it. And I think the real practitioners, the people who are actually about it, will continue to do so either way because although it may seem like I've gone from being a hip-hop producer into doing this I was making this weird instrumental shit to no one's to no audience in 2017 and if it goes away and if the, the Spotify playlist and drifts off or whatever is like near is essentially my brother I'm still gonna end up fucking around with this shit like I find it the finding the patterns and the grooves and all that's deeply fascinating it's much more interesting than a lot of the other, well, for me anyway, it's a lot more interesting than a lot of the other musical art forms. I think it just has such a wide variety and depth to it that, you know, yeah, it just seems to encompass all other things in a way. Um, yeah, yeah. Endlessly malleable as well, yeah. 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 Earlier you mentioned DJ Shadow. And I wonder, in, in, in light of, and even especially the last five, ten minutes of our conversation, do you see yourself as part of a lineage or do you think of yourself are you a collagist what's your, what's the self-image of you that's that's the exact term i don't know if you can see it on the wall behind me there there is a 
a sort of giant photo montage. And at some point when I was about 16, my dad was very much into David Hotney and David Hotney does these photo collages. And I, I was doing that before I was making music. I'm, I'm basically just making collage. It's the easiest way to explain it. Although there is a musical element to it, the bits when it goes off piece and goes strange, which I also enjoy, and it goes a bit more hip hop, is it's kind of actually leading into my real expression. Like I am, I just do collage. You know why? Like, is it an integrate? Is it like I, I don't, I don't even want to guess. Like, yeah, what, no, no, you know what? Yeah, the shadow thing. I got. I remember saying this to someone. I was like, I think it is introducing is the greatest work of collage in the 20th century. Why does it even matter? But I think it's because in a era of information overload or of such overwhelming amount of data or whatever the colors and images to just operate in one thing it seems quite simple whereas if you just instantly place this one thing on top of another it just recontextualizes everything and i just love that i love how you know the warhol thing is one example the toilet uh, what is it the fountain's another one but that that i'm obsessed with this band called company flow as well and they had that and they did it, lp is now the main guy by her on the jewels or one of the half from the jewels but in their raps, it was always this cultural reference. Like, every, I'll be like, oh, what does this mean? What cartoon is that from? And where is it? This layering of everything. And so from the early stage, I was just doing that. And I just love now. Like, mate, the root of this conversation, even the fact that the, you asked me, like, has Lisa Doll heard, <laughs> heard of us? It's like, it's just something I took from a film. And then we were like, oh, we should call the tune The Lonely Tears of Lisa Doll because this ties into this. And really, it just I just find it very enjoyable more than anything. I think in having quite like a psychedelically orientated mind the synthesis or the creation of novelty by combining two things together and how they give definition to one another is just kind of an endless game of fun yeah 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 but that's not the most articulate way of putting it but yeah it just i don't know i just it's just where i've got to and i don't know i've sat down and played the piano a bit but it just doesn't strike me as fun i'd probably sample myself playing the piano as opposed to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's fortunate, I suppose, that we didn't start with this part of the conversation because I think we would have spent the hour going down the rabbit hole of New York underground hip hop because as soon as you get into company flow and you start talking about the things you just brought up, I'm going to meet you there and we're going to talk about MF Doom and we're going to, we're all that world. Really, what you're, a lot of what you're talking about is these artists, they build worlds. LP, especially his production, just every one of his produced tracks sounds like its own little outpost in a universe of all his tracks that kind of like he has a fictional universe that he lives in maybe not as articulate as dooms but it's you can hear an lp production yeah and also the way he would flip something i find quite annoying because i own a lot of the records and i'll be sifting through it and i'll be like oh why didn't uh, i hear that yeah yeah, but but i think that's the bit is that the collage so everyone is presented with this same world and then he chose to make this really dark sinister version of it and or interpretation of it and i just yeah i kind of have this thing where i don't know how else to do anything now <laughs> this is i just found myself here wanting to do it and yeah it's just taking me to fun places basically so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna learn the instrument anytime soon <laughs> well uh, one last thing before i let you go on the dj shadow point i hadn't listened in years but just recently like two or three days ago i revisited the cut chemist DJ uh, was a uh, product placement. Oh, mate, it's amazing. I haven't listened to it probably in 15 years. And it was so, I mean, and the crazy thing was I listened to it so much back in the day. I knew every 
nook and cranny of it as it was playing. It was so fun to hear it again. And it's shocking, the level of artistry and skill. In yeah, that. That, that's one of, one of, if not the best DJ set I've ever seen is them doing that live. Oh, you've, yeah, I, I never saw them do it. Yeah, Maybe maybe it wasn't, they, they did varied parts of it live, but I think they'd actually got Bambata's record collection and they did all the original breaks, but they included parts of that in it. And it was like the visual thing behind it. And I remember, so I'm friends with a guy called DJ Format and I rang him and was like, Matt, You've got, you've got to go see this thing. It's like, you know, he's, he's more of a nerd than I am. Like, he's a deep, like, old school UK record collector, DJ, beat maker. And he, yeah, he went to see it the next night. and was like, yeah, you're right. Oh, I'm pretty sure he did anyway. But yeah, it was, it was insane. But again, man, that, that world building thing, that my obsession with Shadow is the, and that, like, atmospheric recycling of essentially broken dreams into this beautiful one-off record, really. Like, he never recreated it. I don't think he ever wanted to recreate it. I think that is such a unique skill. I'm fascinated by it. The same with RZA. Like, how did he think the Kung Fu films and all the stabs and non-musical things will go together with nine people ranting at each other? How did he come up with that? And also that run. I'm obsessed with that run he did in 93 through 97. Yeah, just that that kind of get your head down, like work at it as hard as possible whilst he catch lightning in a bottle. This is, yeah, that's, they're not, obviously they're nowhere near the same worlds, but at the minute, this is why by the time the third one comes out, we've recorded the fourth one, and by the time the fifth one comes out, so the fourth one's going to be called Game 4, the fifth one's going to be called Jazz in the Age of Data. I want to get it to that point, and I feel like either the band will have taken off and will be flying, or it will have exploded, and there'll be five records, and that's it. <laughs> well, I'm rooting for you. Thank you so much, Joe Mills, Move78, Lee Sedal, and AlphaGo. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Qburn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.